operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. I'm your host, Rock, and by my side, wait, nobody. That's right, Stephen is out for this episode. Uh, He is enjoying his beautiful ranch just outside Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He is probably going to engage in a little bit of elk hunting and possibly even some skiing. We are all jealous. Stephen, enjoy yourself, my friend. Anyhow, in this episode, we are going to... Take it back, do a few comic book reviews. We haven't done any of those in the past weeks since we have brought back the podcast, and I figured it was time to remedy that. And so we have on hand six comics from the House of the Mouse. That's right. None from DC for this week. We are still in the future state titles, and I have zero interest in reading them. Kevin, of course, on comicbookrevolution.com is handling all all the reviews of those future state comics and he's actually quite enjoying many of them. I'm taking the approach that I'm just going to wait until March when DC kicks off their new direction for their uh, universe. I'll hop back in at that point. I don't see any reason in getting in for the future state comics. Uh, Let's just hop in in March when they kickstart their new direction for the DCU and we'll go from there. So this week, all Marvel comics. But before we get into the comics, as always, you can check us out at comicbookrevolution.com for all the news, reviews, and whatnot. You can check our Facebook page out, Comic Book Revolution Facebook page. You can also check us out on Twitter at CB Revolution. And you can check me out on Twitter at Rock2K's Revolution. Okay, in this episode, we have in hand an interesting selection of Marvel comics. We have Taskmaster number three. That is a five-issue miniseries. We also have Thunderbolts number two. That is a three-issue miniseries. It is also a uh, King of Black tie-in series. We've got Fantastic Four number 29. That is also a King of Black big event tie-in issue. We have X-Force number 17. We have Sword number 3. That's another King of Black big event tie-in issue. And Eternals number 2. All right. Generally, I try to avoid big event tie-in issues, but it's really hard to uh, do that with what Marvel has uh, coming our way as it seems like almost everything is somehow relating to King of Black at the moment. So... Here we are. Let's see. Let's kick this off with Taskmaster number three. This issue, the writer is Jed McKay. The artist is Alessandro Vitti. And the colors are done by Guru EFX. And this issue begins with our anti-hero in, let's see, the Republic of Korea. And he is with a death cult. And he's talking to Nick Fury Jr., 
I know they don't refer him as junior, but he's junior to me. That's not that's not my Nick Fury. So junior's on the line with Taskmaster, and they're talking about how Tasky is infiltrated this death cult. He's given them a serum that's supposed to give them superpowers. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. And in return, Nick is uh, asking Taskmaster to go and uh, continue on the quest to find out who killed Maria Hill. And in this uh, scene, Tasky is trying to work his way into the Tiger Division, which is the Republic of Korea's, you know, it's their version of, I guess, S.H.I.E.L.D., their super-powered metahuman program. And Taskmaster, we find out, convinced Nick to give him some tech in order to carry this mission, and some of that tech were bootleg pin particles. Now, Nick Nick Fury Jr. has access to a lot of tech. He couldn't get the real pin particles, but he's able to get some bootleg versions. The Death Cult, the leader, is injecting all the members with serum, hoping that they would get superpowers. And once they've all been injected with the serum, Taskmaster then suddenly activates his bootleg pin particles and shrinks down to a teeny tiny size just in time for one of the characters from Tiger Division busts onto the scene and takes on the cult members. Of course, the cult members realize Taskmaster has uh, turned tail and has probably betrayed them. Cult members attack Taiguki, who is the Tiger Division metahuman on the scene. They realize that the serum was useless, it doesn't give any superpowers, and they quickly get destroyed by Tiger Division hero. At this point, uh, Taiguki flies off to go back to base, and we see that teeny tiny Taskmaster has hitched a ride on the Tiger Division metahuman, and we see them fly off to the Burmason Mountain, where the Korean government super team's headquarters is located. We then see Taiguki meeting with the director of Tiger Division. Her name is Ami Han. We see Tasky hop off of Taguki and he climbs up the wall into an air vent and he sits and he waits and he watches. And he immediately uses his superpowers to analyze people's movements and, and abilities to and immediately realize that Ami Han is a metahuman. She's not a regular human at all. We then get a little flashback about how Taskmaster doesn't like working for crazy people. He doesn't like being framed for Hill's murder, that nothing is as it seems, and he really doesn't like how Fury is using him uh, to go on this crusade to find uh, Hill's murder. It's nothing about this feels good, and Taskmaster even says this is why he has a no-Nazi business, business policy with training henchmen because you know guys like Baron Zemo, they inevitably, uh, everything goes off the rails and the Punisher ends up showing up and uh, you know running you over with a truck. So, you know, Taskmaster knows someone is playing him. Someone is framing him for Maria Hill's murder. Someone has gotten Black Widow hunting him and wanting to kill him for Maria Hill's murder. And Taskmaster's not happy about this whole situation. And then, of course, while he's sitting in the air vents thinking about all this, he hears a beeping sound. Uh Uh-oh, he gets an alert that mass reduction unstable warning the little bootleg pin particles are starting to come apart Ugh, he's about to lose his teeny size at that point uh ami han says there's a tiny man in the vent get him and taskmaster runs through the vents runs through the vents 
and suddenly crashes through a vent into a hallway and whoop, grows back to a regular size because bootleg pin particles. At this point, suddenly, the white fox appears on the scene. She's a new character. Of course, Taskmaster, he can recognize movements and he knows immediately, I know who you are, you're Ami Han. Boom, the director of Tiger Division. I got to tell you, at this point, uh, it's a really cool costume. She's got long white hair, uh, a neat mask that kind of covers up her eyes. She's got a black and white outfit and a white foxtail on the back end of her costume. It's a great design. It looks cool. This leads to a great fight scene. And in it, you see Taskmaster pulling out a punch he saw from somebody one time and a kick that he saw from Iron Fist one time and a throw from Captain America and a stomp from Shang-Chi. It's a really neat way of handling Taskmaster's superpowers. Of course, we kind of get to a stalemate in this fight. Taskmaster's really taking it to, you know, White Fox. She gets a hit on him. And then suddenly, uh uh-oh, Black Widow appears. Oh, no, Taskmaster freaks out. He goes, I'm dead. He goes, look, I'll surrender. Whatever, just don't let her kill me. And Black Widow says, I'm here to arrest Taskmaster for killing Maria Hill. White Fox is like, you don't come into my base and tell me what to do. So the two ladies square off. And at that point, Taskmaster pushes a button. And we find out what he had been injecting all the Death Cult members with. Not super power serum, but actually some type of serum that turns them into a psychic uh, nuke, right? And they release all the psychic energy. We see the cult members in the jail cell at Tiger Division's headquarters, and suddenly they all glow with energy, and everybody in the headquarters grabs their heads, and, uh, and they all pass out. Except for one person, Taskmaster, because he has psychic baffles built into his mask. Hmm, there you go. Taskmaster then stares at Black Widow, thinking I could kill her right now if I wanted to, and he thinks about it, he thinks about it, and then goes, no, mm-mm, not doing it, and he writes on the wall, I didn't kill Maria Hill. And then he thinks, Coulson and Han, two out of three are down. Now it's time to go to Wakanda. And there you go. That is the end of the issue. Taskmaster number three. This was this was a solid issue. It was nothing, nothing particularly amazing. It, it you know, it's not bad. It's not good. It was just resolutely average. Uh, the good from this issue, I would say, it had some nice humor. There were some lines that were genuinely funny from Taskmaster. They get the reader chuckling. There's uh, some solid dialogue. It's it's not great. Some of it is a little stiff, but overall the dialogue is pretty solid. There is a running. The whole issue is a running monologue, internal monologue of Taskmaster, and some of that is really well done. I think that McKay does a good job making Taskmaster likable, but he's still a bad guy. It's it's important to show that Taskmaster would not kill Black Widow at the end of this issue when he had the chance to do so. You know, we want to keep Taskmaster, you know, quote-unquote bad, but we don't want him completely irredeemable, or, you know what I mean, or a character that the reader would feel guilty <laughs> about liking and, and rooting for in the story. So I, I think it's good to keep him being a, a rapscallion for sure, but he is not going to be a cold-blooded killer. So I like that, they, that McKay did that with Taskmaster's character. Uh, we got just enough action in this issue. I would have liked a bit more. 
uh, the only real action we got, I mean, there was like one page of action when Tiger Division shows up and takes down the Death Cult, but that really wasn't much. The real action was the fight between White Fox and Taskmaster, which was good to be sure, but on a Taskmaster title, I would have liked a bit more action. It's This is the kind of title that needs it. I do like how McKay portrayed Taskmaster's power set. That was really well done, showing where he got the different moves and using the different fonts and designs for each move. Like, you know, the Iron Fist move he uses, lettering is inside of Iron Fist's you know, logo. The punch, the throw from Captain America is in a different font. The stomp from Shang-Chi is in a different font and color. It's a really creative, really dynamic way of showing the fighting. Kind of reminds me of what you might see in manga. But it was a lot of fun. I even like how <laughs> McKay had Taskmaster say, I wish I knew the name for all these cool moves. <laughs> you know, because you got to have names for your cool moves. Anyone who reads a shonen manga knows that, right? So that was really well done, how McKay handled his his powers and the way they portrayed it in the fight. That was just a fun feature. I've always felt that Taskmaster, uh, I've always felt that Marvel has underplayed his abilities. He's always, uh, given his abilities, I really feel like Marvel should have him at a higher level in terms of power and ability and and also in terms of respect and recognition from other characters in the Marvel Universe. To me, Taskmaster should be should have always been portrayed as one of the most feared hand-to-hand combatants in the Marvel Universe. We didn't get that in this issue, and that leads me to some of the bad of this issue. His fear, Taskmaster's fear of the Black Widow, and his belief that she would just, just murder him in a fight, and his immediately surrendering, that just didn't work for me I'd, i mean black widow is you know no doubt a, a world-renowned spy and assassin and extremely accomplished and deadly but at the end of the day she's just a normal human with no superhuman powers whereas taskmaster is a much bigger guy with a really deadly superpower and i just don't see this guy being so deathly afraid of Black Widow, given the superpower differential between the two, I I just don't see it. It's not believable, and it really didn't. It just didn't work for me. Even if Black Widow could take him in a fight, which I I don't see how, given their power sets. Even if that's the case, I'd like to see Taskmaster with uh, far more confidence because someone with his abilities should absolutely be one of the cockiest bastards uh, you've met no doubt about it one other thing i did like about this issue is uh, the white fox character i really liked her character we don't get to see a lot of her no doubt but she has a cool look and i think there's some potential there with white fox i would like to see uh, i'd like to see more of her for sure i think there's i think there's a lot of potential there uh, the artwork overall on this issue was pretty solid. It's not the best stuff I've seen from Alessandro Vitti. I like his art, and I've seen better-looking issues. But having said that, this is still a quality-looking superhero comic book, no doubt about it. Now, what I didn't like, well, the 
pacing and the plot progression of Taskmaster number three is not the best. You know, this is only a five-issue miniseries, and it seems like McKay only has enough content for about three issues, and he's stretching it out, stretching it out to get over five issues. He burns six pages just getting Taskmaster into the Tiger Division headquarters, and those six pages were not particularly interesting or compelling in the least bit at all and simply recycled material that we had gotten in the prior two issues. Uh, then McKay burns four pages with Taskmaster in the vent, listening to Ami Han's conversation with Tai Guki, which again was absolutely nothing new at all and just simply recapping prior events of issues one and two. So uh, here we are 10 you know, ten pages into the issue, and nothing's really happened. It's really the final ten pages that's the meat of this story. We get the White Fox appearing. We get a cool fight. We loop Black Widow into the story. And then we have Taskmaster heading off to Wakanda. So, you know, when you have a five-issue miniseries, you, you need to... Boy, you hate to see uh, fluff and wasted pages in a five-issue story. A five-issue story should be extremely tight. It should be well-paced. It should be well-plotted with plenty of plot progression. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate to see in a five-issue miniseries. Overall, how would I grade this issue out? I would give Taskmaster number three, I'd give the writing five Nightcrawls out of ten. Just, it's, it's straight down the middle average. I would give the art seven night girls out of 10 and that would give it an overall rating of six night girls out of 10. Look, I, I would only recommend taskmaster number three. If you're just a huge, huge fan of the taskmaster character. Other than that, there's really nothing that special in this, in this comic book that warrants uh, the, the cover price that you, <laughs> you gotta, that you have to spend on to get it. it. There's nothing about this that is particularly interesting or different from other offerings on the comic book stands. So for me, if you're not a huge Taskmaster fan, you're probably best on uh, on skipping it and buying something else. Next up, Thunderbolts number two. Now this issue is also starring Taskmaster. It's good to see Taskmaster getting a lot of panel time in the Marvel Universe. I Again, I just think Taskmaster is a wonderful character with so much potential. There's no reason why Taskmaster couldn't play a much bigger role in the Marvel Universe going forward. I just think there is so much to do with Taskmaster's character. And I hope Marvel keeps investing the time in his character and continues to give him you know, more high-profile stories as we go forward. Uh, the Thunderbolts, this is basically uh, Marvel's answer to the Suicide Squad. There is nothing groundbreaking here, but just because something isn't you know, brand new and groundbreaking and novel doesn't mean it can't make for some quality entertainment, and that's really what I was looking for in this title, and it's honestly what I got. Thunderbolts number 2 is written by Matthew Rosenberg. The artist is Juan Ferreira, and the colors is also Ron Ferreira. In this issue, we begin with our Thunderbolts team, which consists of Taskmaster as the leader, Batrock, Mr. Fear, and Star. Really, it's a this is a good core cast of characters. I, I was surprised, I and I've been surprised at how much I have enjoyed uh, this cast of characters because other than 
Taskmaster. You know, these aren't really high-profile characters in the least bit. And in the case of Mr. Fear, I've never really had any interest in this character at all. Star, no. There's very little from Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel that's ever going to interest me. And Batroc, I mean, I've appreciated him as being a classic Captain America villain, but it's not like I'm yearning for more Batroc in my comics. So outside of Taskmaster, I wasn't really demanding and clamoring for these characters, but damn it, if Rosenberg hasn't made me like all of these characters, I'm really impressed by that. Anyhow, we begin with the Thunderbolts arriving at Ravencroft and meeting with Norman Osborn. Uh, they're here at the behest of Wilson Fisk, who of course has started the, this version of the Thunderbolts. And they're there to try to help in this battle against the uh, King of Black threat that's going on. Fisk contacts them while they're at Ravencroft. And, you know, Mr. Fear kind of, you know, calls Fisk fat. And Fisk tells Taskmaster, punch Mr. Fear in the face for me, which Taskmaster gladly does. (laughs) And then Fisk asks the rest of the team to leave uh, the room while he talks one-on-one with Taskmaster and Norman. And so we follow Star, Batrock, and Mr. Fear outside in the hallway, and they're just kind of chit-chatting with each other. Mr. Fear recognizes some of the people that are locked up in Ravencroft, one of them being Figment. And, of course, Mr. Fear's like, hey, you think we could free Figment? She could join our team? And Batrock's like, no, 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 no. She can't join. And Mr. Fear's like, why not? And Batrock's like, Cause this team already has an idiot. It, it's idiot. And Mr. Fear's like, ooh, you talking about me? And Batrock's like, well, if you have to ask, you're the idiot. You're the idiot. And so Mr. So Mr. Fear's like, you want to get in a fight with me? And Batrock just, boom, just kicks him in the throat, pins up against the wall, does a pretty sweet split in doing so. And is like, look, man, uh, I, I, there's like a hundred different ways I could kill you. And this is one of the ways, you know, unless Star wants to save you. And Star's like, I'll pass. <laughs> At this point, we see one of the uh, Venom dragons appearing on the scene, breaks through the top of Ravencroft, breaks up the brawl between Batrock and Mr. Fear. At this point, we see the goo, Venom goo, dripping into some of the prisons, infecting some of the prisoners there. They break out of their cells, and uh-oh, we got a big fight. At this point, our Thunderbolts power up, and they attack, and we get a pretty cool brawl scene with the venomized inhabitants of Ravencroft. They're blasting through them. We get some good, we get some good witty banter in this fight scene, which I dig. And Star actually is, you know, showing good personality. I'm surprised here, but everyone here, it's it's the type of witty banter that you want to see from a team of misfits like this. Eventually, what they do is they're about to leave the scene. Uh, Star's like, look, we can't leave these these villains who haven't been venomized trapped in their cells. we got to let them out. And Taskmaster's like, are you really kidding me? These are psychos. We have a job to do. And Star's like, yeah, save people. And he's like, Dumpf. Taskmaster's like, fine. We'll, we're talking about this later. Trust me. You know, they start releasing all the villains. And Batroc's like, oh, it's very admirable of you, Star. And she's like, thanks. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, I'm afraid, you know, you'll probably get us killed. But it'll at least be an admirable death. Anyhow, they're getting people out, getting people out. They hop into a bus, a Ravencroft bus, and vroom, zip out of the facility, and they're racing down the street. And you see a venomized deer in the road that they hit. And our, our, our teammates are like, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? Taskmaster said that Norman came up with a plan, and unless anyone has a better idea, they're going to follow it. We don't know what that plan is yet, 
They talked about that off panel, but we do know they are looking for a person, a him. We don't know who. And evidently, this person is giving off a lot of energy and that Star should be able to use her powers to find him. Taskmaster's like, look, Star, just, just reach out with your powers. Let it flow through you. And she's like, are you quoting Star Wars to me? And Taskmaster's like, no, okay, yes, yeah, I am, sorry, but I don't know how that magic rock of yours, you know, gave you, that gives you your powers works. And she's like, actually, you know what, you're right. It is basically Star Wars. <laughs> um, which, <laughs> again, just great dialogue between these characters throughout the entire issue. And Star says, well, what if we can't find him? And Tasman's like, I don't know. We, we, we all die in the end of the world. Stuff like that. <laughs> He's like, so we're good to go? And she's like, I guess so. And Tasman's like, great, good luck. And just kicks Star out of the rear door of the bus. And she's like, ah, flies out of it. And then, you know, kicks in her superpowers and flies off. And then at this point, you know, Batrack's like, did you just throw Madam out of the vehicle? And Taskmaster's like, yep. Bat- Batrack's like, super. Do we have a plan now? And Taskmaster's like, well, I mean, Norman Osborn came up with it, and that dude's lost to Spider-Man a few hundred times, so he wouldn't be my first choice for a winning plan. <laughs> Again, I just love it. The dialogue, it's fantastic. So Star starts powering up to try to search for this person. We cut back into the bus, and Taskmaster's like, why are we going so slow? And he goes over to Mr. Fear and he's like, are you going under the speed limit? And Mr. Fear's like, look, I'm crazy, not suicidal. You know, the speed limit's the maximum allowed for, is the maximum speed allowed for large vehicles. And it's suggested to drive below that. And Taskmaster's like, the world is ending and you're driving 45 in a 55 mile per hour zone. Give me the wheel. And suddenly Batrock yells out, uh, look ahead because the bridge is totally gone. It's been split in half and it's missing. And the bus shoots over the edge of the bridge and it's about to plummet to their doom into the water when suddenly, boom, it stops in midair. And we pan back and we see Star has grabbed the bus from the bottom and she's holding up in the air and Mr. Fear pops his head out the door and goes, hey, look, blonde chick caught the bus. Good job, blonde chick. And she's like, don't talk to me right now. And Mr. Fear's like, you know, can I just tell you, you you look seriously good right now. And she's like, I'm very heavy got to concentrate screw off and mr fear's like i'm just saying after we save the world maybe you and i and we didn't see taskmaster like lady asked you to shut up <laughs> and so we cut then to star having brought the bus back on the ground and star is trying to catch her breath she powers back up she continues reaching out for that person we see the bus back on the road following star and we find that she's located the person and we see legs coming out from a bush and taskmaster goes that's him and taskmaster goes Let's pull him out. And Star's like, you think he'll, you can convince him to help us? And Taskmaster's like, not going to be necessary. We see it's the sentry. And as they pull his legs from the bush, we see it's just his lower torso. Taskmaster says, Noel ripped the sentry in half. This is the lower half. But there's a lot of energy still in his lower half. And Taskmaster says, we're going to blow up the lower half of the body of the sentry and take out Null. And Star asks Taskmaster, wait a minute, how are we going to survive that? And that is the end of the issue. Thunderbolts number three. This was a fun, a fun read. It is so much better than it had any right to be and is way better than I was expecting as well. I I had low expectations for Thunderbolts coming in. First of all, it's a it's a King in Black tie-in issue. Big event tie-in issues usually are a miss for me, but not this one. 
Not this one at all. I, I'm really having fun with what Rosenberg's doing on this title. It's been so much fun. The dialogue is, it's just great. It is really well done. Every character has a nice, unique voice. Character work is well done. Each character has their own unique personality. The result is the chemistry is fantastic between all the members of the Thunderbolts. Rosenberg just kills it. The chemistry is awesome. These characters feel real, and the way they play off each other, it is so entertaining. It is so immersive, and the reader just finds themselves getting lost in the story because of the really good dialogue and character work that goes on in this story. It's what makes it so much fun. One great example of this humorous dialogue is how earlier in the issue, in the scene at Ravencroft, Batrock and Star were discussing how Star wants to be a better person and more like Wonder Man. And so you fast forward to later in the issue when the our team has just survived falling off the bridge due to Star saving them by grabbing the bus. You know, once she lands the bus on the ground, Batroc's like, Bravo, madame, you're already acting like that Wonder Man, but a woman, Wonder Lady. Like, that was a great... Great line, great callback to earlier in the issue, nice little reference to Wonder Woman, really well done. It was all part of this fun vibe to this issue. And it is, yeah, there's a lot of violence, these are uh, bad characters, you know, they're villains, and the end of time is, is nigh, but it's a fun story because of the personalities, the dialogue, and the chemistry that we got cooking in this issue. I just love the entire cast. The entire cast is wonderful. Each character, fantastic, and each one plays their unique individual role on this team perfectly. Taskmaster is great as a leader. He is absolutely awesome. I like Taskmaster in Thunderbolts so much more than what McKay gives us in Taskmaster's miniseries, to be totally honest with you. Rosenberg gives us a much more confident alpha male Taskmaster. Taskmaster is way more badass in Thunderbolts. He is just a much better character. Batrock, also, like I said before, he's a cool character who I've always appreciated as a, as a classic Captain America villain, but I like him even more in this issue. He's got an even more interesting personality. I, I like it. Yeah, he's a villain, and Mixes it up with Mr. Fear, and he's the kind of guy who looks at someone and thinks about all the different ways they could kill him and is, is, doesn't hesitate to, to go ahead and uh, do that. But at the same time, he appreciates the uh, kindness in Star in wanting to free all the villains. And he's, he shows some real depth to his character, to his personality. And I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, but I like it. He's, Rosenberg's really giving us a more fleshed-out Batrock. He's he's got a cool look, first of all. He's got a great look with his handlebar mustache. And I like his fighting style and his power set. And this extra depth to his character is really making him interesting. I just like he's got a cool personality with this neat French flair to it. It's 
Batroc's really well done in this issue. And Mr. Fear is just fantastic. He is excellent in the role as the agitating and irritating and obnoxious jerk. You know, you just want to see him get popped in the face, which he does in this issue. But he's really good in that role as the agitator. He also provides some really wonderful comedic relief, which is very necessary in a tie like this. You don't want it to get too dark, too serious, take itself too seriously. You don't want, you don't want that to happen. Some good comedic relief is always important, and Mr. Fear is supplies plenty of it in this issue. And I, I got to take Star. She's great, and I, I cannot believe I said that. That's one character I thought for sure when I picked up Thunderbolts. I was no way I was going to like, but it just shows you how good a character can get when you get them away from Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel, Star really has a neat personality. Her role on this team is the straight man, which don't undersell the role of a straight man. That is a vitally important role in any team concept, especially on a team like this. You got to have a straight man, and Star plays it really well. I, I really like the personality that Rosenberg gives her, and... I'm just surprised how much I enjoyed her a lot. She's a heavy hitter. That's another important role that she has for this team. Is she's she's obviously the strongest, most powerful member of this team. I think it's kind of neat to give the most powerful member the straight man personality uh, to play off the other the other three rogues on this team. The action is fantastic. You get lots of good action in Thunderbolts number three. It is fast paced. There is never a slow moment. There is never a dull moment. Rosenberg kicks the story off in the beginning and just romps his way through to the end. It is very lively read and it ends with a nice hook ending. All in all, it's got great plot progression. The story moves forward with a purpose. A lot happens in this issue. There never feels like there are any wasted panels. It never feels like Rosenberg is stalling for time. This is just an exciting, fun, action-packed story that drives the plot forward. And the artwork, let me tell you what, the artwork is 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 good. I really like Juan Ferrer's artwork. His art really matches the mood and the tone of the Thunderbolts. It's a bit dark, but has nice detail to it. It's a good match for these characters and this type of story. Honestly, the only thing I have to say as far as the bad for Thunderbolts number two is I don't like Taskmaster's mask. That's it. The mechanical skull, robotic skull face that he has. I prefer his classic uh, skull face that we see over in the Taskmaster miniseries. I think that looks better. This mechanical one, it doesn't look nearly as cool. There you go. That's really my only complaint for this issue. That's right. Thunderbolts number two is that good. All right. Overall, how would I grade out Thunderbolts number two? Well, I'd give the writing... Nine Night Girls out of ten. This is just an entertaining, fun story. I'd give the art seven Night Girls out of ten, and that would give it an overall score of eight Night Girls out of ten. I would definitely recommend giving Thunderbolts a try. If you like, if you like super teams comprised of roguish characters, villains, that kind of thing, then I think you will really enjoy Thunderbolts. It I, I, doesn't matter if you don't 
if you're not interested in any of these characters, if you've never really been a big fan of any of these characters, I think you'll be surprised how much you enjoy all the members of this team. I would definitely recommend giving Thunderbolts a chance. All right. Next up on our list is Fantastic Four, number 29. This is also a King and Black tie-in issue. We just can't escape them this week, can we? The, this issue is brought to us the writer, Dan Slott, the artist, Zay Carlos, and the colors, Jesus Abertov. In this issue, we begin on Yancey Street. Mr. Fantastic uses his spatial content, uh, compensator to decompress the remains of four Yancey Street. So, boom, their headquarters is back and better than ever. Now, he does caution everyone that, you know, look, this may not be the perfect backup. I couldn't restore it exactly how we had it. So it might be missing a few things. And one of the few things we see it's missing is all of uh, Johnny's stuff. His room is just a brick wall when you open the door. So it's Johnny's room is one of the few things that didn't get restored. And he's all bummed. He's like, I love my stuff. All my stuff. It's great. Well, Sky, his new soulmate, she's like, don't worry about it. We can make a date out of it and get you all new stuff. What do you say? And she's like, Johnny's like, new things? She's like, better things. He's like, many things? She's like, all the things. And Johnny's like, you know me so well. And Sue Storm's watching this going, ugh, gross. Uh, We then cut back to the kids, Val and Franklin. And they are at the Baxter building site. And they're working on the Forever Gate, making some modifications so only the Fantastic Four can use it, can open and close the aperture. And they're locking it down. And the design of it is all based on on Bentley's design. And Val gives Bentley some props. We then cut to Soho and see Sky and Johnny. They've finished their shopping spree. They're sporting some of their new outfits and all the neighbors in, in the neighborhood are saying, hey, to Sky. And she she knows everybody, you know, on a first name basis. And Johnny's like, well, you've only been here for a couple of weeks. How do you know everybody? And, she, and Sky's like, look, I've, this is my new neighborhood. This is my life now. And I'm, I'm their local superhero. So I've made friends with everybody. And Johnny's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And so Sky takes Johnny around, shows him some stuff that she likes about Earth, and he does the same. He shows her stuff that he likes about Earth, like hot chocolate. And along the way, they talk about these armbands that Johnny and Skye are both wearing. These armbands mean that they're soul-bound between the two of them. These bands mean that they're in perfect sync, uh, more so than any other two beings in existence. And she's like, you know, I know you don't fully believe this, but I do, and, you know, Hopefully, eventually, you will, too. And at this point, Johnny's like, wow, you know, it's amazing. You had to say goodbye to all your friends, your family, everything back home to live here with me. You really sacrificed a lot. And she's like, well, we're soulmates, so it's okay. And she goes, by the way, I've made new friends. And evidently, Sky uh, can communicate with birds. And so some of her new friends are birds. And she you know, tweets out some tweets. And these birds come flying around them. And she goes, I see, I believe you call these Twitter friends. And, she, and Johnny's like, this is not what tweeting means. And she's like, well, fine, then show me. And Johnny's like, I like you way too much for that. So this is an interesting scene in the fact that Slot is doing a lame Twitter joke and having Johnny say he likes Sky way too much to expose her to Twitter. And Johnny's smart because Twitter is like, you know, a sewer line. But what's funny about it is Slot is like known for living all of his time on Twitter to the point where he's not getting his work done. It's like, well, why would you call something terrible if you spend all your time on it, like how hypocritical. 
Anyhow, suddenly one of the birds bangs into something, and you hear, ow, uh-oh, it's Invisible Woman. She was invisible, bird banged into her. She then turns visible again, and Johnny's like, what? You've been spying on me the whole time? And Sue's like, yeah, yeah, you know, this whole soulmate thing is crazy, and I need to look after you, and it's happening way too fast. There's no way it's going to end well. And Johnny's like, I can't believe this. He goes, look, with uh, you've had it out for a sky me since day one. You never did this when I was dating anyone else. And Sue's like, no, I never, I never, I never spot on you like that that you know of. <laughs> and so Johnny's like, what, really, seriously? But before the siblings could continue arguing, suddenly we see it raining those venomy space dragons and the fantastic four boom you know call to action sky says she's going to stay here and help the neighbors and the fantastic four members all unite and fly off to take down the venom symbiote dragons we get a big brawl scene everybody battling up everyone's fighting the fighting the venom dragons and we cut back to the baxter site and the, the franklin and val they're holding off the venom dragons from the forever gate there and we see miss marvel captain america joining the fight scene as well you know there's wolverine and we see wolverine getting taken out by some of the symbiote stuff and we see black cat taken out we see captain marvel taken out the only one who doesn't get taken out we see in this scene is invisible woman because she creates a little force field around herself uh we then see spider-man and human torch talking about something we don't know what they're saying but luckily, the editor box says, if you want to know what Spidey and the Torch are talking about, check out King in Black number two. Ugh. Okay, that's that's great. Spider-Man leaves the scene, and Human Torch does big Nova explosion, and then disappears. And the only one left there is Sue Storm. Suddenly, Sky appears on the scene, and she's like, I can't fast, I can't. Where's Johnny? And Sue's like, I don't know. Our comms are down. I've lost him. Sky's like, you're not, you're wrong. Your brother's still down there somewhere. I can feel it. We have our sacred bond. She points to a little armband. And she says, he's cold, hurt, struggling, darkness all around him. He's all alone. And Sue Storm's crying. And she's like, stop it, Sky. I can't deal with this nonsense right now. You don't have a magic love bond with my brother. It's just an alien bracelet. We then cut back to Johnny. And he's like battling the Venom symbiote goo. And it suddenly takes him over. So now he's all venomized. And then suddenly, oh no, because he's connected a soulmate with Sky, because they're bound together. Once Johnny becomes all venomized, Sky becomes all venomized. Oh dear! Then Venom Sky attacks Sue Storm. They start battling each other, and Sue creates a uh, t- pulls out a little flash gun, and it creates the you know the, creates the big flame for the signal, the Fantastic Four signal gun. She fires it off, temporarily blinds Sky, and Sue turns invisible and. Woo, zips away we then cut back to yancey street with reed richards meeting up with sue and they're like oh no you know we got to find johnny and you know he's now a venom he's been venomized and so has sky and we got to find ben and suddenly oh ben Grimm comes over the communication signal and says hey guys um, where are you guys? They're like, we're back at Yancey Street. Come, come meet us there. And the thing goes, I'll be right there. And we cut over to the thing and we see, oh no, he's been venomized too. Oh dear. Just not good. And that's the end of Fantastic Four, number 29. Um, this issue was, was solid. It's, it's, it's better than average. It, for a big event tie-in issue, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. Of course, the best aspects of this issue had absolutely nothing to do with the big event story. 
in my opinion, what I liked about Fantastic Four number 29 were the scenes with Johnny and Sky. That's the storyline that interested me the most. Everything else with the Venom stuff, eh, whatever. I, it, it didn't add much value to me. I really dig Johnny and Sky. I like their pairing. I like the chemistry. I like the dynamic they have. It's very interesting. It, this whole, this whole soulmate bond that they have with each other. Uh, it's 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 fun to see a character like Johnny, of course, who is you know superficial, shallow, likes to party, have a good time in this type of relationship. And it's fun to see a character like Sky, who is so devoted to this concept of a soulmate. Because it's just something you don't usually see in the Marvel Universe, which normally tends to be kind of dark and pessimistic and jaded. And something like true love, something like uh, a soulmate, it's just not something you see that often. So it's pretty cool. Um, And I also like how this Sky-Johnny dynamic is impacting Sue and Johnny. And it really creates a fun element between the two siblings. And look, I love that Slot has Sue spy on Johnny. I even like how she slips in there like, eh, I may have done this before. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's perfect because Sue is his older sister. And this is such a classic older sister thing to do. I should know. I have an older sister. So, yes, this is exactly what older sisters do. It's such a wonderful family dynamic and it creates a new relationship a new situation between sue and johnny that should really be interesting as we go forward i'm really curious to see how this plays out it should be a lot of fun uh, overall this character arc was was quite solid you know dance a lot for all of his weaknesses he does Love the Fantastic Four, and he does have a good feel for the family dynamic and for all the members of the Richards family. So I have to give him that. He does get the characters. He understands how they interact with each other and and how they should behave around each other. And so because of that, the character work is solid, the dialogue is solid, and the chemistry is pretty darn good. All the chemistry between all the members of the Fantastic Four I, I like it. it. It feels like a real family, and that's that continues to be the strength of this of this title, and what I like the most. Uh, the bad, well, yeah, there's some really just corny, lame jokes that just don't fall well in this issue. A slot just comes across like a guy in his fifties trying to say things that he thinks the youths would find funny, and it just misses the mark time and time again. The story itself, the, the the story itself that's away from the Johnny and Sky storyline, and that's the the King and Black story. That you know, I I hate to say it, it just it just feels very generic. There's nothing, I don't know. There's nothing special here. There's no real reason to read Fantastic Four number twenty nine if you're not a huge fan of the King in Black big event. Uh, that's really the boring aspect of this issue for me. The, the What I like about it is the Johnny Sky dynamic. That's worth the price of admission 
for this issue. If you're a big King and Black fan, you might enjoy this issue more than I do. If you love big event tie-in issues, then you might enjoy this issue more than me. Again, most big event tie-in issues are kind of lacking. They feel really generic. They feel like cheap cash grabs and rarely offer anything of substance. So I only liked it because of the Johnny Sky storyline. If you're a regular Fantastic Four reader, you're probably going to enjoy Fantastic Four number 29 just for the Johnny Sky plotline. If you're just a fan of King and Black, I don't know why you would bother to get this issue if you don't regularly read Fantastic Four. It's nothing special in that regard. How would I grade Fantastic Four number 29? I would give the writing six Night Girls out of 10, the art eight Night Girls out of 10, for an overall score of seven Night Girls out of 10. I have to say, before we move on, because I didn't mention it, C. Carlos, I'm not very familiar with C. Carlos's artwork, but I like his art a lot. It is a very clean, slick style of art that is well-suited to a mainstream superhero comic. It is nicely detailed. The character expressions, their facial expressions are really well done. The action scenes are dynamic. The art pops. This is good, really good superhero artwork. Really enjoyed Carlos's art. Hope he uh, gets more work in the future. It's quite, it's quite pleasant. Next up is X-Force number 17. This issue is brought to us the writer Benjamin Percy, the artist Joshua Casera, and the colors Guru EFX. This issue, it begins with Quentin Kyre recounting all the various ways that he has been killed since uh, the beginning of this title and how he's resurrected by the resurrection program of Krakoa. Of course, X-Force members being the black ops of Krakoa, they get priority for the resurrection program on Krakoa, so they get to hop to the front of the line and immediately get resurrected whenever they get killed. And Quentin's like, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of getting killed all the time, but, it, it, you know, what can you do? And we see Quentin arriving, flying through the air. He's on a new mission. He's going to a cruise line that Sage... Uh, intercepted a uh, SOS signal from. He lands on the cruise line, on the cruise ship, and sees everybody's dead. Corpses in the pool, corpses in the pool chairs, corpses at the bar, in the restaurant, in the hallways, dead people everywhere. And Quentin's like, oh my God, I don't know, who, who, who did this? And the whole time he's like, look, I'm the Omega, I'm not going to die. I'm the Omega, I'm not going to die. I'm the Omega, I'm not going to die. He's really... He's really convinced. Not going to die this time. He's going through the hallway. And he's nothing but dead bodies everywhere. And he finally goes to one stateroom, opens the door, and it's a little girl, and she's crying. She's holding a teddy bear. And Quentin's like, hey, hey, don't be afraid. I'm one of the good guys. And she goes, no, you're the bad guy. And Quentin goes, that's impossible. And he turns around, and he sees like a pink glow from behind him. And he goes, and he goes that's impossible. And then we cut away to a one-page insert of Beast's logbook. And it's talking about the terror campaign of the Sapiens and how they've got a propaganda feed, talking about how the mutants put mind control organics in all their medicines and that this article by the Sapiens has been shared by tens of millions of people, including politicians. And, of course, the claim is false. Beast goes, we can't, we can't prove uh, 
it as such without exposing our biotechnology. And yes, we are certainly capable of such measures, but we consider it only in extreme circumstances. I'm like, wait, so hold on, time out. This propaganda feed that the mutants are putting mind control organics into the medicines, it's being deemed to be false, but the mutants can actually do it and would only do it in extreme circumstances. So, okay, I guess it's technically not true, but it is true that you can do it and you would do it. So, eh. once again, the mutants, not that sympathetic under Hickman's uh, direction. They continue to, to walk that line of kind of being the bad guys. We then see, it continuing on this little memo, that the mass murder of the cruise ship passengers that's who Quentin Kyra was investigating, was staged in such a way that its proximity to Krakoa and the profile of the attack itself, which appears at glance to be a psionic event, implicates us. Da-dun. Okay. And the conclusions are disinformation and distrust are our greatest enemies. Civilian loss of life requires immediate response and characteristics align with previous Xeno campaigns. All right. We then shift to the hatchery on Krakoa and bloop, out comes Quentin Reborn, and standing there is Phoebe Cuckoo, his girlfriend. And she's like, welcome back. And he's like, oh, man, how did I die this time? And she's like, uh, I don't know the details about that, but I do know you keep losing time because the, the there's a gap in time between the last backup for every mutant and when they get reinstalled. There's always going to be a, you know, there's where the backup happens to their death there's always a small gap in time between the last backup and when they die. So they lose a little bit of memory each time. Phoebe Cuckoo kind of fills in the gaps just in case he's forgotten. She fills in the gaps of what he might have forgotten. And mainly it's the, the the two of them are in love with each other and are dating each other now. And she's like, here you go. Gives him the memories back. And she's like, you feel better? And he's like, much better. And he goes, except I need to know how I died. We then cut to a resurrection report, one-page resurrection report. And it's about... Quentin Kyer, it shows how he comes to them with all these requests for revisions. Every time they bring him back, they, they go to bring him back to life. He keeps making these requests every time. It's pretty funny because he's up to like 312 requests now on what they want to do. Like I think request 310 was change his hair from rose gold to rose gold instead of pink. And then change 311 was change his hair to pink instead of rose gold. And then there was change 226, which is to limit hair follicles on face at, on these precise dimensions so he would have wouldn't have to shave and then request 225 eliminate hair follicles on the side of head at these precise dimensions to avoid shaving and then request 224 is eliminate hair follicles and armpits back chest and groin to avoid waxing and i think well let's see request number 14 is adjust eyes to to uh 2020 vision acuity making glasses a mere accessory uh request number 13 was adjusting and it's redacted obviously it's his penis to these precise dimensions it's it's and then the notes are like god he's so annoying we need to put forward a resolution to the professor to override some of x-force's power re resurrection protocols these cosmetic changes are more than absurd they're slowing us down i like it this is so quentin Kyre. This is so consistent with this character. This is a funny, this is a really funny page. Really well done. All right. We then cut to Metro General in New York and Quentin and Phoebe Cuckoo are on the scene. He freezes everybody in the hospital so they can walk through 
uninhibited. He goes up to one of the survivors of the cruise ship attack, and he reads his memory to see what in the heck attacked him. And it looks like whatever attacked him had some like Wolverine claws, but he looks all venomy like and Colossus all venomy gouging out someone's eyes. And so there you go. And at this point, Phoebe Cuckoo goes, man, um, you know, I was studying the mental signatures of these survivors and they carry sonic scars and your fingerprints are all over their minds. Quentin, they leave the hospital and Quentin's like, Phoebe, what I, what happened on the ship? What did I do? And Phoebe's like, don't worry. We're going to figure it out. Quentin's like, why are you here anyway? You know, why do you even want to be around me? Pity or guilt? And she holds his hand. She's like, stop, stop. He's like, you know, you all, you, you guys used to all used to hate me. You used to call me a freak. And she calms him down. She says, look at me. And she goes, you know why some people can't stand you? Because you're always acting like the star of your own stupid movie. But that's it. It's an act. And she goes, I can see past that. She can see, can see the... The, that all of it's compensation for him being insecure and being scared. And he's like, gee, thanks. I feel so much better now. And she goes, look, you're also sweet as a strawberry and you want to be loved and you want to love back. And Quentin's kind of like, you know what? All this time I've been putting on a show of mutants being better than anyone else, everyone else and of me being better. But what if we're not? And I don't have any memory of what happened on that mission. What if I kill those people? And she's like, Phoebe's like, look, you are better. And you didn't do those things on the cruise ship. And she kisses him and tells him, you shouldn't be afraid anymore. You shouldn't hate yourself or even a part of yourself. She says, that's what's holding you back and making you more kid than an Omega. And she says, there's a part of your mind you never let me see. You never let anyone see what's locked in there. Quentin then makes like a little psionic key, pink key, unlocks his forehead with it and floods out his memories to Phoebe. And in it is... He always knew he was adopted, but he chose not to remember because his biological parents treated him the way kids at school would later treat him as weak and as a victim until he wasn't anymore. And Phoebe's like, look, you adopted. You were adopted because you made yourself an orphan. And Quentin's like, yep, my powers didn't fully develop until later, but my parents' death was the first flash. And Phoebe's like, you know what? Thank you for sharing. I know it wasn't easy. Quentin's like, no, thank you. And he's like, you know what? You know you know how you make me feel? And Phoebe's like, all the strawberry sodas in the world popped to their tops and fizzed over at once. And Quentin's like, pretty much. <laughs> and Quentin's like, you're saying I needed to grow up. And she's like, I'm not saying it. You're thinking it. Uh, she goes, you keep dying because you really want to be reborn. And Quentin's like, you know what? I don't want to die anymore, but I'm only capable of so much change. And she's like, well, you know what? Let's start with your look. And he's like, what's wrong with my look? It's uh, my look is the anarchist chic punk rock flair. It's hot. And she goes, nope. It's other, not good. This is a great moment. Good character growth here. And they walk into a store. It's a clothing store. And in there is Jumbo Carnation. Phoebe asked him to meet him there. And he's like, oh, your, your, your look, Quentin, is immature. It's outdated. It's stale. It's tacky and decidedly human. Uh. And so... <laughs> They pour some champagne, and it's time to get on a new look, and they're trying different looks. Phoebe's like, it's time. It's time for you to stop holding yourself back and become the best mutant self. And So we're looking at Quentin all these different outfits. Like One is like this total, like I mean, Grant Morrison, uh, early 2000s look. 
think Marvel boyish almost really it's like too post-apocalyptic it's got spikes and chains and mohawk and then he wears one it's like an all pink spandex outfit very sentai looking he's like too clingy and then he's got one that's like super 1990s with a billion pouches and he's like too pouchy and then he's got one where it's just like pink energy around him but he's naked and he's like too much pee pee and then he's got one that looks like uh, Gladiator's costume, he's like too Shi'ar. And then he's got one that looks like a Wolverine. He's like too bad mentory. And then they finally settle on the one. It's a really cool looking outfit, actually. It's all black with some pink line accents, hot pink line accents on it. And an, an Omega symbol on the shoulder and on the chest. And he has like, uh, instead of regular glasses, he has pink psionic energy glasses, but doesn't have the arms on the sides to the glasses. It's actually a really good design this is the best design for quentin's character i like it a lot uh, anyhow suddenly jumbo you know leaves the scene he goes to grab something and then comes back all like crazy like he's possessed and you see like pink energy sonic energy coming out of him like what quentin kyer has it's coming out of his eyes coming out of jumbo's eyes and he's got like you know a garrote and says he's about to attack our two uh mutants and then we cut to the man with the peacock tattoo of Zeno. And he's like, ah, you're getting stronger, aren't you? Soon you'll be ready for what's next. Ha, ha, ha. End of issue. X-Force number 17 was, it was a really good read. Uh, Benjamin Percy delivers a great story. There's a lot to like about this issue. Look, first of all, I will admit up front, I like Quentin Kyer and I like the stuff for Cuckoos. So right there, I might like this issue more than you might or other people who aren't such huge fans of these characters. Look, it's no surprise that I love these characters, given the fact that I am a total slut for Grant Morrison and Grant Morrison created both Quentin Kyer and the Stepford Cuckoos. So this issue tailor-made for me. Uh, I think that Percy pulled off some fantastic character work with Quentin Kyer. I mean, excellent character work. I have always liked Quentin's character, but to be honest, it was time for him to grow. It was time for his character to evolve and become something more. As much of a fan of the character, even I admit it was it was overdue. This character had to evolve. Percy understood that, and he really delivered some awesome character evolution. I was blown away. I was not expecting such great character work on Quentin's character. And it's not just Quentin. You know, We'll get to her in a minute, Phoebe Cuckoo. We'll get to her in a minute, but she got great character work as well. But let's stick with Quentin. It's great that... Percy was able to peel back the layers of Quentin's personality and get to the heart of why he acts the way he does. This is a wonderful way that Percy is able to deconstruct Quentin's character in order to reconstruct him better than before. And he does it in such an entertaining and fascinating way fashion. It's just so cool to see Quentin maturing and growing. It is this type of growth that is so satisfying to read. And it makes sense. Quentin's behavior, his persona, 
from his look to his personality and how he treats other people, it is all one huge defense mechanism. At some point, Quentin had to just grow up. He had to man up. He had to look at what he is trying to hide, what he's trying to run away from, deal with it, and become a better man. And Percy delivers it wonderfully in this issue. I mean, I love how Quentin is the character who has died the most. And how Percy goes, yeah, the reason why he's died the most is because he wants to. He's He is subconsciously aching to be reborn and to be reborn better than ever. And that's why he makes these ridiculous requests uh, to uh, the resurrection program to change this about himself and that about himself. And at first, when you're reading this issue, you're like, what a jerk. Of course, Quentin's making like 300 and some requests to change things about his, his uh, body and his look uh, because he's just a pompous jerk who's an egotist. But in reality, it is Quentin's subconscious desire to become someone better and different and new. It is this desire to be reborn as, as a better man. And once we get to that later in the issue, it makes the earlier scenes about all the deaths and all these requests for changes to his body make so much more sense. So this evolution of Quentin's character was done seamlessly and logically. This was not out of the blue. This was not inconsistent with his personality, his character. This is Percy taking an established personality and naturally evolving it into something new. Really well done. Usually writers will just trash what came before and install their new personality for a character, ignoring the past. Normally when writers want to give a new personality to a character, they just trash what came before. They don't even try to make it fit with the established uh, character traits and personality traits of that character. They just do what they want to do regardless of the past, not Percy. He actually takes the established character traits and personality traits of Quentin Kyer and uses them to evolve them in a logical fashion to create this new version of Quentin. That is fantastic. I absolutely love to see writers putting in that good kind of work. And of course, his use of Phoebe Cuckoo to do this was wonderful. I really like how Percy writes Phoebe's character. I, I, I love her personality. I love her belief in Quentin. I love her support of Quentin. It is that type of unwavering belief that is, it's just nice to see. She truly loves, supports, believes, and wants to build up her man. She wants to build him up to make him something better that she knows he can be, which is really nice to see. I like her personality. Percy's able to also create some wonderful chemistry between Quentin and Phoebe. The two play off each other so well. I really love the two of them together. It's cute. It's adorable. And the whole strawberry soda thing was adorable. Stuff like that can sometimes become schmaltzy or cheesy, but Percy threads that line perfectly to where it's cute and adorable and you like it. You know, the fact that the fact that, you know, Phoebe says, oh, I make you feel like all the strawberry sodas in the world popped the tops and fizzed over at once. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, you do. It's just it was cute. It was well done. It was well done. I just I really like this this pairing and I'm excited to see more of these two characters together. They make a great team. I also like the new look for Quentin Kyer. It's a 
great design. It's much better than his prior looks. It's an updated look that he needed, and it's nice to see a physical manifestation of this new man that Quentin has become. It's, it's, it's well done, good design, thumbs up from me. I also like the inclusion of Jumbo Carnation in the story. He's a fun character. He's unique. He added a little, uh, a little uh, comedic relief to the story as well. And, of course, Percy ends this issue with a wonderful hook ending, a good double hook ending. You got Jumbo Carnation possessed with uh, pink psionic energy and about to attack Phoebe and Quentin. And at the same time, you have the man with the peacock tattoo from Zeno going, yes, yes, you're more powerful than ever. It's a really good hook ending. I'm excited to see where Percy's going to take this story with the next issue. I am all in with the next issue. You got my attention. I'm ready to come back for more. And honestly, for the bad for this issue, I don't have any complaints. I don't know what to tell you. I have no complaints of, of X-Force number 17. Percy did a great job with this issue. It was a good character study fo- issue focusing in on Quentin. I, no complaints at all. I guess if you don't like Quentin Kyer and you don't like Phoebe, then you may not like this issue nearly as much as I do. I get that. But if you're just okay with Quentin's character, maybe neutral on it or like him, then I think you're really going to like this issue a lot. And I think people who are neutral on Quentin's character will end up liking his character a lot more by the end of this issue than they did at the beginning as well. Uh, I would grade X-Force number 17, give the writing nine night girls out of 10, the art eight night girls out of 10 for an overall rating of eight and a half night girls out of 10. I really didn't go much into the art. Joshua Kassara, it's just a good looking issue. He's got a nice, he's got a nice slick style of art. It's good stuff. It's, it's dynamic. He can do nice uh, action scenes. He can do nice character heavy scenes. It's just a quality, a quality looking comic book. Uh, Kassara knows how to deliver a nice mainstream-looking superhero story. So this is a very pleasant-looking issue, no doubt about it. All right, next up is going to be Sword number three. This issue is brought to us writer Al Ewing. Art, oh boy, it takes a village to make this comic. The art is by Valerio Skeedy. Ray Anthony Height, Bernard Chang, and Nico Leon, and the colors by Marte Garcia. This issue begins with Manifold uh, walking through the universe. How Manifold can walk through the universe, and he's not really a teleporter. How Manifold is able to walk and travel anywhere. We then cut to Manifold arriving at his ancestral homelands in Australia. He's hanging out with Baz and Sammy. And uh, telling him how he's been through some rough times and he's killed a lot of people, but he's uh, doing better now. You know, Baz and Sammy tell him, tell Manifold, you got to be careful with Krakoa. It's dangerous. Then Manifold goes, hey, you guys doing okay? You guys seen any space dragons or anything? And uh, Sammy and Baz were like, ah, the aliens, those aliens from King and Black, they, they want no piece of us here in Australia. And then we cut from that scene and we get a one-page Insert on the Snark War, which is the colloquial term for the Zinra War of Succession being fought from between all the heirs of the throne of the Zintrix 
Empire, I guess. And you have Kuga, Wessel, Condor, Liga, and Tiagar. Five different children vying for the throne. And then we cut to uh, Deep Space, the flagship of Prince Diagar. And we see Manifold has arrived there, teleported there. Well, sorry, he doesn't teleport. He's arrived there using his abilities. And he's there to try to get Diagar to help him fight Null. And uh, we learn from Diagar that Null has, uh, is, is, just, is destroying planets. And that's a good thing because Diagar's siblings all have planets, whereas Diagar doesn't. He has a space fleet. And so he doesn't have to worry about protecting a planet while all of his siblings have to worry about protecting their planets from Null. And so he wants Null to keep on destroying planets because it makes Diagar his position better against his siblings. Therefore, Diagar has no desire to help Manifold in defeating Null. So, no thanks. Don't want to help him. My enemies all have worlds. This monster that destroys worlds is a good thing for me. I don't have a world. Manifold goes, got it. You're a jerk. I'm out. Bye. After Manifold leaves the scene, we then see someone appear off panel and kill Diagar. Okay. All right. We then cut to the Alpha Flight space station, the office of Henry Peter Gyrich. Manifold sneaks onto the scene and we see Gyrich walking to his office. So Manifold has to hide. Gyrich is talking to someone on the phone. And right now we know that Gyrich is the acting commander of Alpha Flight, including Gamma Flight. We learn that Gyrich is talking on the phone. He's holding a file in his hands. And we learn that, oh no, Gyrich is part of Orchid. Oh dear. And in this scene, Manifold like makes he's hiding from Gyrich, but he, he draws a little circle in the air, and we see like a little energy circle appear behind Gyrich with just Manifold's eye looking through the little circle. It's a pretty cool use of Manifold's powers. I, I like it. Very cool. Anyhow, um Gyrich has a redacted version of the org chart for Orcus. He tells the person on the line, of course they haven't printed it out, but he has, it's in a file. And Gyrich is like, you know, this thing with Null is a, is a huge problem. Hopefully the superheroes do what they always do. Otherwise, we're all dead. We then see Manifold create a little portal, grab the file off Gyrich's desk. We then get the one-page look of the redacted file to the Orcus Protocol, and it has the different strategies. You see seven circles. The middle circle is Central Executive, and it's all redacted. And then there's three top circles. One says research development and then some redacted information. Two, infrastructure slash influence. That's Henry Gyrich. Three is operation slash offense. That's redacted. And then the three bottom circles are all classified. We don't know what they are at all. But we do know inf infrastructure and influence is uh, Henry Gyrich is in charge of that for, the, for Orcas. We don't know who's in charge of operations, offense, and research and development. And we don't know anything about the other three. And we don't know who the central executive is. That is also redacted. Manifold is like, oh, crap. He puts the file back on Gyrick's desk and then whoop, exits the scene. And we see Gyrick saying, look, hopefully Orcus is going to be there to stop the mutants and get more recruits. And Gyrick also mentions that he has a mole in sword as well. We then cut to Manifold arriving at the launch pad and telling Brand, oh, we got problems. We got problems. Henry Gyrick is part of Orcus.'" 
And Manifold says he saw the org chart. Brand's like, look, we got other problems. Gyrus will have to wait. Right now, the comms are down and nobody has returned from Kokoa. So go check it. So Manifold whoop, goes over to Kokoa. And oh dear, we see right there. Null is on the scene and he's taken down all the mutants on Krakoa. Oh no. End of issue. What did I like about this issue? Uh, Manifold does have some neat powers. No doubt about it. And I thought Ewing did a good job describing to the reader how Manifold is not simply a teleporter that in fact he can communicate with the universe and allows him to manipulate and travel through the universe in a fashion that a teleporter couldn't do. Got it. So effectively conveyed to the reader Manifold's powers. That was well done. And Ewing employed Manifold's powers in some cool ways, specifically in Gyrich's office at the Alpha Flight facility. That was pretty cool. But outside of that, eh, there's not much else to like about sword number three, I, I have to say. Look, Manifold's a boring character. He is really boring. Uh, he has no personality. I mean, no personality at all. He is a giant bowl of bland oatmeal. I didn't even get some sugar. I didn't get some brown sugar. I didn't get any blueberries. It's just plain old boring oatmeal. There's just nothing to Manifold's character. Nothing. He has no unique personality. He has nothing there that gets the reader interested in him. He is just a beige wall, and he puts you to sleep. So that makes this issue really hard to get into when you have such a crushingly dull character as the main character for the entire story. Uh, it's also a King in Black big event tie-in issue, and those you know rarely mean good things are in store for you. This issue, the plotting and the pacing are poor, quite frankly. Ewing does a bad job in both regards. This issue is slow, plotting, and boring. It's just dull. The first eight pages of this issue were literally pointless. I mean, it was 100% pure fluff. Utterly nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. You didn't learn anything. You didn't advance any storylines. You didn't pull off any character work. It was utter waste of time. Then you get the one-page info sheet on the Snark War involving the Zinfrix War of Succession. Okay, it felt like generic sci-fi that nobody cares about at all. And then you get five pages of Manifold trying to recruit Diadyar to help against Null. And Diadyar refuses and gets killed by an unknown character. It's just way too much time spent on a throwaway character. Why we spent five pages on this scene is beyond me. It was at best, a two-page scene. At best. And then you get six pages on Alpha Flight's headquarters to learn that Henry Gyrich is a part of Orcus. You know, we're finally shown something interesting and something resembling plot progression in this six-page scene, but it is still several pages too long. I mean, this is like a, a three- to four-page scene max. 
And then you get the final two pages with Manifold telling Brand about what he's discovered and then heading over to Kokoa to come face-to-face with Null. It's just, sorry, this story, Sword number three, is shallow and dull. It meanders. It has no sense of urgency. It has very little plot progression. It has very little actual content to it. It is just a meandering mess. That's all it is. And it's really unfortunate. There's very little actual content in this issue. It's not worth the cover price. You're not getting anything. You can easily skip sword number three and get sword number four and not miss a thing. Like literally not miss a thing at all. The artwork by committee is uneven and average at best. And that really detracts from the story as well. I rarely like artwork by committee, and sword number three is is no exception. I hate to say it, this sword number three is the biggest miss um, out of this selection of comics for this podcast. This is the biggest miss. It's a real disappointing read. I don't know why you would buy this issue unless you were just a massive fan of Manifold. That's really the only... The only people I would recommend this issue to are just huge fans of Manifold. For everybody else, skip it. You know, if you're just a regular reader of Sword, there's nothing in here of substance for you. If you're a fan of the King in Black storyline, there's nothing really of interest in here for you. It's just a big bag of nothing. And an expensive one. Uh, My final grades for Sword number three, I will give the writing four Night Girls out of ten. The art, four night girls out of 10 for an overall ranking of four night girls out of 10. Let's wrap this one up with the final issue, Eternals number two. This issue, the writer is Karen Gillen, the artist Assad Rabik, and colors Matthew Wilson. In this issue, we begin with a knockdown, drag out fight between. Thanos and Icarus. It takes place at the ruins of Titanos on Earth. And it is a big, big brawl. This entire issue, of course, is narrated by the Eternals machine. And it gives you a little insight on all the characters and what's going on. This brawl is just fantastic. It's a nasty brawl. Not only does it go through different locations, it goes through different aspects of time. It's it's really a cool fight. I mean, it's it's pretty badass. And at the end of it, Thanos gets the upper hand, and Thanos rips off Icarus's head. Even though Eternals don't really die, they, they come back. Thanos rips off Icarus's head, only to find out, oh no, it's an illusion, and that Sprite has whisked away the real Icarus at the last moment, and says, time for a retreat, let's get out of here, and they do. We then cut to the machine telling a story about how Icarus was battling through Titanos for some whatever complicated reasons we don't know when he passed a time distortion and he saw for a moment a coastline with a grand monstrous threat and a young boy spotting it. And he asked the machine to find out where it was. If he survived, he would deal with it. So you see Icarus arriving on the scene and going up to the boy and saying, hey, boy, have you seen a monster? And the boy's like, are you a god? And Icarus is like, I'm not going to answer that question because there's no reason to. Either you'll believe me or you don't. 
And he goes, I just want to know, did you see a monster? And the boy's like, I've not seen a monster. And Icarus is like, well, I had a vision. I saw it was here. This is what I want you to do. Make a pyre right here, and I'll have the great machine watch it. And you will light it when you see the monster, and I will come. And the boy spent his entire life by the pyre. And then he became a man, and he had his wife and his two sons, and he still stayed dutiful, looking for the monster, sitting by the pyre. And then he became an old man, still by the pyre. And then he died. Boom. Next to the pyre. And his two sons put him on the pyre and lit it. And then, boom, Icarus appeared. And the sons were like, hey, our father spent his life, wasted his life watching, and there was never a monster. Never. Icarus is like, sorry for your loss. I can't understand my error. I saw the scene. And the sons are like, you suck. Our grandfather, you know, barely, I barely knew my grandfather. And the son's like, yeah, my father wasted his life. So it's like two generations, you know, wasted. And suddenly the grandson goes, oh my God, it's a monster. And Icarus realizes, oh no, the boy who saw the monster was not the grandfather. It was the grandson. Oh, oops. Bad one on Icarus, huh? Anyhow, Icarus fought the monster, killed it, and luckily, all the seared flesh from the monster was a bounty for the village, and they were able to eat it, and it it sustained them for a long time, and for thousands of years, they lit bonfires in time of need, and the god never came, but it made them feel better. Okay. I don't know why we had that whole story, but there you go. Then we come back to Olympus on Earth. And we continue from the scene in the beginning of the comic with Icarus fighting Thanos. Uh, Sprite has arrived back on Olympus with Icarus. He's all beaten up. They're wondering what's going on. And of course, Druig is being his normal jerk self, needling Icarus. They're like, look, let's just wait for Xerus to return. He's going to return to life shortly. And when he returns, he will decide what we do next with Thanos. And Icarus is like, we got a chance to kill Thanos. We can't let him escape. And then suddenly, guess who walks onto the scene? Fastos appears and says, Xerus isn't returning. I found all the wardens of the exclusion slaughtered. The machines of resurrection were inoperative. The dead will stay dead. Oh boy. And the great machine who is narrating the story goes, I'm broken. That's what's wrong with me. All of this makes sense. I'm usually not so loopy. Uh, he goes, apologize if any quirkiness creeps in. So everyone's freaking out that the great machine is broken. What should they do next? So Thanos is definitely behind it. At least that's what Icarus thinks. Of course, Icarus and Drug engage in squabbling, as they always do, until Cersei enters the scene and tells everyone to just calm down, shut up, relax. She's got everything going. She tells Icarus, come with her. She will heal his wounds. We then get a cool two-page timeline of the Eternals. It's really cool. It starts with the Titan Schism of the Second Age between the Zerastian faction and the Larset faction. Then it goes to the War of the Eternals, then the Accord. Then it goes to the reestablishment of the Titan Colony, the growth of the Titan Colony, Thanos' birth, Thanos' life, the punishment, and the judgment. So it's really cool. You should read it. It basically is a really concise, really helpful recap of the Eternals' continuity and their history to help new readers know about the Eternals' backstory is exceptionally 
well done. We then cut back to Cersei healing up Icarus's wounds. At this point, Fastos tells everyone that if they cannot fix the great machine, then the Earth will be destroyed within a week. That's right, unfortunately, because the machine is connected to the biosphere, and if it's not fixed, then it'll cause a huge geostorm that will destroy the Earth. Oh dear, not good at all. Fastos then asks the great machine, who gave Thanos an exception to use the transit system, and how can it be removed? The great machine replies, I can find no data on the exception, and I'm unable to remove that exception. Oh, not good. Sprite at this point goes, so we have a traitor. I hope everyone isn't looking at me right now. And Cersei's like, well, we got some, someone's a traitor. We need to try to figure out what's going on. Icarus says, we don't trust you, Sprite. We don't trust, we don't trust you, Sprite. That's why you're going to stay with us in our sight. And Cersei's like, look, we're going to find out if Sprite is either a true innocent or the perpetrator. So there's no point in keeping her outside the circle. Besides, she's adorable. And Sprite's like, I am adorable. Icarus goes, look, I have lots of gifts. Searching for secrets isn't one of them. Icarus says, I'll be there when there's a nose to break. And he walks off. He's going to let the others try to find the traitor. We then cut to New York. Icarus taps on the window of a young boy. The boy opens the window and Icarus says, you are Toby Robeson. The boy says, yep. Icarus says, I'm Icarus of the Eternals. I will protect you. If it's required, I'll give my very life for you. The boy goes, uh, 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 okay. And the machine narrates that Robeson thinks this is a dream. But he's, he's close, but not correct. It's actually... A nightmare to be continued. Eternals number two. There's a lot to unpack here. This is a tough issue to grade because there's a lot I like and a lot I don't like. <laughs> I'm, I'm equally on both sides of the fence with this issue. Gillen has talent. There's no doubt about it. I thought that he delivered an issue that was really well balanced between action and character-driven scenes. And I really appreciate that. That was great. And he for sure starts off this issue with a kick-ass brawl between Thanos and Icarus. That was awesome. What an exciting way to start the issue. That was so cool, so much fun. I really liked the beginning to this issue. That opening scene was excellent. All in all, I think that Gillen writes a really good Icarus, too. I mean, he nails Icarus's personality. I'm a huge fan of the Eternals because I'm a huge fan of Jack Kirby. All right. Anything Jack Kirby does, I love. And Jack Kirby's uh, Eternals story from 1976 to 1978 was just fantastic and is still the best Eternal story, bar none, period, not even close, that we have gotten to date. Look, Jack Kirby did the had the New God story over in DC in uh, in the early 70s. And unfortunately, those titles got canceled before he could complete all of his uh, plot lines and stories that he had for the new gods. It was meant to be a fully enclosed beginning, middle, and end story, but he never got a chance to reach to the end because the titles got canceled. So when Kirby came back to Marvel in 76, The Eternals was Kirby continuing with a new god style story, continuing with some of the themes and ideas that he had with the new gods, and Icarus is essentially the Orion-style character. So if you know Orion, you know Icarus. They are the bruiser. They're the one that's sent in to kick ass 
and chew bubble gum, and they're all out of bubble gum. They are very single-minded. They are very they are a blunt instrument. They're not there to talk. They're not known for being very polite or nice. And Gillen nails, and I mean nails, Icarus's personality and his character. This is the Eternal that Gillen does the best job with by far. So I really appreciated that. Honestly, Gillen's take on the Eternals is about the closest that we've ever gotten to Jack Kirby's Eternals. Uh, Everything we've gotten since Kirby's 1976 to 1978 Eternals has not been very good. Uh, I really didn't like Neil Gaiman's quote-unquote modern reimagining of the Eternals from the mid-2000s. That was pretty bad and didn't age well at all. That's that's. That's super dated now. Gillen, I think, is the first person to really go back to the roots of Jack Kirby, to really get back to the essence of what Jack Kirby was trying to do with the Eternals. Now, no, it doesn't read like a Jack Kirby story. Don't get me wrong. Gillen is still delivering his story in his style. But it feels more in the spirit of what Kirby had in mind with the Eternals. And the two-page spread of the Eternals history was fantastic. That was so clear and concise. This is all new readers need in order to enjoy the Eternals. You don't need to have read a single issue of the Eternals before. You read these two pages and you are absolutely good to go. It's it's great. It was nice. I'm really impressed. It's it's hard. The real talent of being able to do this type of history recap in two pages is you got to know how to distill it down into as few words as possible. A lot of writers struggle with delivering things in very short and concise packages, and Gillen does it here. So kudos to him. That's really well done, and this will really help new readers. And it's really important, especially when dealing with a franchise like The Eternals, which, to be honest, has a pretty convoluted continuity and has been retconned before when it was the Eternals were kind of merged in with Jim Starlin's Titans characters. So this is very necessary. Glad to see that Gillen did this too. That's what I enjoyed the most about this issue. What I didn't like about this issue was, as much as I think Gillen captured Icarus's personality really well, and, and to a lesser extent did capture Sprite's personality really well, though I'm still having a hard time with Sprite being a girl. I don't know why he is now a girl, other than I guess they cast a girl in the role of Sprite for the movie, and therefore synergy. Gotta have the comic like the movie. Nobody cares. Nobody watching the movie is going to buy the comic. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's never happened. And Marvel still <laughs> clings to this belief that that happens. Or maybe that is just Disney-mandated synergy. I don't know. But anyhow, um, he, Gillen does do a good job with Sprite's personality as well. But outside of Sprite and Icarus, the rest of the Eternals don't have any type of personality whatsoever. I mean, no personality whatsoever. They are all so blah and generic. And that's a shame because Cersei is one of my favorite characters from the Eternals. She's an awesome, awesome character. And Gillen doesn't really do a particularly good job with her character at all. She is, to be kind, she is pretty blah 
She's pretty boring. I mean, she really comes across as just a generic character. There's nothing about Cersei's personality that shines through at all, which is a real shame because Cersei's character has really been a wonderful character in the past. I loved her on The Avengers. I just thought she was fantastic when she was on The Avengers. That's really when I thought her personality really started to bloom, and I adored Cersei with Dane Whitman, the Black Knight. Great pairing. Really did a good job. Those two characters really complemented each other well. So, it's unfortunate to see Gillen giving us such a boring version of Cersei. That's really unfortunate. And the rest of the Eternals. Just, they're so stiff and boring. The dialogue is not good. Other than, again, other than Icarus and Sprite, the rest of the dialogue, it is stiff and dry. Honestly, the comic reads like Masterpiece Theater. That's how these Eternals talk. Again, except for Sprite and Icarus, none of them have any type of unique external voice at all. All these Eternals sound the same. It is that same mechanical masterpiece theater voice. It's terrible. There's no chemistry at all between any of these characters, which is an absolute shame. And because these characters don't have any type of real personality or unique voice and there's no chemistry, the reader really never gets fully immersed in the story. Uh, The result is that the reader is kept at arm's length from all of these characters in this story. There's a real disconnect, and that's a shame. I'm also... You know, to be quite honest, I didn't. Even though I did enjoy the fight scene between Thanos and Icarus, I am sick of Thanos's character. Seriously, I've had enough of this character to last me for a long time. Thanos needs to go away, and go away for a considerable amount of time. Marvel needs to put him on ice and not even mention his name for like five, six, seven years. It it needs to be a good long time the longer the better this character is just so overexposed so overused that i just i'm sick of seeing him i I just i have no interest in thanos's character at all anymore and this is a character that i used to like a lot before they just before marvel just completely overexposed him the actual construction of eternals 2 i i didn't really like at all Gillen does not present the reader with a well-constructed story. The issue feels completely disjointed and meandering at points. The first six pages is a cool fight. Then we get this random five pages about the boy and the monster. Why? It feels so out of place. It doesn't do anything for the story at hand. It leads to the disjointed feeling of this issue. And then you get whiplashed back into the seven-page scene at Olympus, dealing with the opening scene, and we learn where the Great Machine is is broken and that they must fix it or else the Great Machine will, you know, cause the destruction of Earth. Well, that's fine. And then you get two pages involving 
Toby Robeson, which again is, feels unrelated from the other stories. So you have the Thanos slash Great Machine about to be destroyed slash Traitor storyline. And then you have the separate Boy in the Monster storyline and the separate Toby Robeson storyline. And none of them seem to complement or fit in with the next one. And the way the issue goes from scene to scene is just fractured and has no flow at all to it. It is not a very pleasant reading experience. I had higher hopes for Eternals 2, and I, I think that Gillen still has a good basic concept in mind. I just want to see Gillen tightening up his vision and tightening up the presentation and direction of the story and then really start to focus on fleshing out some unique personalities to these Eternals characters because at this point I'm not too sure why the reader would feel a connection to really any of these characters at all on this title and you, that's vital for any new title you've got to quickly establish some type of connection between the characters and the reader. And that has not happened. That's a real serious issue that Gillen needs to address quickly or else the Eternals is not going to last that long. All right. I would grade the writing six Night Girls out of 10. I'd give the artwork seven Night Girls out of 10. Listen, Rivik's style of art is no doubt a bit divisive among fans. I understand that. Rivik's style of art is highly stylized highly stylized and you either love it or you or you hate it i like his style of art so i don't mind it is it my preferred style of art on an eternals comic no no i i, I you know it's not what i would prefer on an eternals comic i i like more kirby style art i like more sleek smooth sci-fi style art on an eternals comic but Ribbick's art is good. I do like him as an artist, and I think he does a fine job on the title. So I'm okay with it, though I understand that there are a lot of people that don't really like that his stylized type of art, and that's fine. Overall, six and a half Nightcrawls out of ten for Eternals 2. All right, that wraps up our selection of comics. All in all, out of these six Marvel titles, uh, we had mostly good stuff the low rated comics were taskmaster number three with an overall score of six out of ten sword number three with a f overall score of four night girls out of ten and eternals number two with an overall score of six and a half night girls out of ten so those three on the lower end but that was balanced out by x-force number 17 with an overall score of eight and a half night girls out of ten fantastic four number 29 of the overall score of seven night girls out of 10 and thunderbolts number two with an overall score of seven and a half night girls out of 10 so you had three on one end three on the other end but overall i mean no, honestly none of the issues from this week outside of sword number three sword number three is the only issue of the six that i was like this is just crap the rest were all solid to very good so not too bad not too bad of a, of a selection of comics from Marvel. I have to say, better than I was expecting. So I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased, to be sure. All right. As always, you can download and listen to the Comic Revolution podcast on podcast services anywhere, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon. Please make sure to rate 
and review with five stars. It helps people find the podcast. And we love hearing from the followers of the revolution. Of course, you can always find our reviews and features on comic books and the manga industry over at comicbookrevolution.com. You can also check us out, the Comic Book Revolution Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter at CB Revolution and me at Rock2K's Revolution. Fun time this week. I promise you, even though we are doing deep dives into various topics on this podcast like Disney Star Wars and Pixar and the Muppets and, you know, the manga industry and Cobra Kai and all sorts of fun stuff that we're doing, we will still always return back to Marvel and DC Comics and read and review and break down some new comics to be sure. Thank you for your time. And until next episode, Viva la Revolucion.